the fact that that emotion was carrying on so long to someone who never even met Connor Darcy and was emotional about it. Like that, there's some real power there. Hello, everybody, and welcome into another edition of There's a Lot Going On, the only podcast that's in the crosshairs of the woke mob. I'm David Arroyo, joined as always my pal Tom Shively. Tom, it was a very busy week in sports this week. There was, uh, specifically just from the NFL, there was like a ton to talk about, which doesn't leave enough time for us to talk about all the crazy stuff that happened, even in college football. I'm sure you'll hit that toward the end when I let you get get your you know last final parting shots in. But when, Tom, when I gotta let know me, when you let me speak. Yeah, Tom, you just completely cut into my intro, but it's okay because I needed to know anyway. How are you doing today? I'm doing fantastic. You know, we're uh, just finished a great interview that we're about to get to. The New England Patriots got a win, so you know I'm I'm ready to go. We're flying high. Well, flying high indeed. Before we get into any of the NFL talk, you kind of alluded to it there. Earlier today, we got the opportunity to sit down and speak with Patty Cotter. He is the director of a new documentary out now called 16. Now, if you don't know a lot about 16, we're going to really get into it here in a second. But basically, it is the story of a Penn State goalie. His name is Connor Darcy, who died tragically in a car accident a few years ago. We're going to get into it far more, but I just want to say off top, Patty was fantastic with us. And if you would like to go support him in the show notes of this episode, not only is his social as always, but is also the documentary itself, 16, the link to it so you can go and rent it and watch it. I highly recommend it. It's a very good documentary. So without further ado, let's go to that interview now with Patty Cotter. All right. Well, we are excited now to welcome in our good friend, friend from college. He has a documentary out right now called 16 that he is the director of. His name is Patty Cotter. Patty, welcome into There's a Lot Going On. Thank you for joining us here on a Sunday evening. It is great to be here. I've been waiting to be on the show since my freshman year of college when you guys were starting it up. Uh, so the fact I'm here, it's a, it's a true honor. Well, Patty, once again, thank you for joining us. And we just kind of start before we get too far into, you know, what the documentary is about, you know, kind of your process and whatnot. We just wanted to start off right at the top. Tell the people a little about yourself. Who are you? What, what do people need to know about you before uh, we know anything else about the film? Yeah, I'm a, a documentary filmmaker, recent college grad from Penn State. Um, when I was at Penn State, I, I knew I wanted to get into storytelling somehow. So I tried legitimately everything. I tried writing. Um, I covered all the sports for as a beat reporter. Um, I tried podcasting and broadcasting and um, everything. Uh, but you know, I took a trip out to London, um, funded by Penn State to make a documentary film. And through that whole process, just absolutely fell in love. Um, so from then on, I've called myself a documentary filmmaker and I've tried to do everything possible to, to make that title come true. Okay. So you, you mentioned you settled on documentary filmmaking after trying out all these other things. What made you want to settle into documentary filmmaking? What about the art of it did drew you to it? That's such a great question. And I, I'm so strongly opinionated on this and so unbelievably biased. So, you know, what I loved about writing and journalistic writing is that you get to get to the truth of stories, to the heart of stories, to the reality. Um, you get to outline it, plan it, and kind of bring the reader through a series of, of facts and, and details that bring a story to life. That format works really well as that. Film works really great as this emotional jackhammer, basically, getting people to feel 
really, you know, heightened emotions through music and through composition of, of framing and, and all these different techniques that bring out the most in human emotion. Um, I love that. And I love that. And when you combine the two, I think you get this super powerful story that has all the journalistic attributes that we love from writing and all the cinematic emotional heft that comes with cinema. Um, and when you put that together, you get this amazing thing that I'm completely obsessed with. Like when I see a great documentary film, I just, I rewatch it twice. Cause I think that is how a story should be told every time. So yeah, I'm, I'm glad you brought up the emotion. Cause I think 16, just the story kind of naturally lends itself to the emotion of it. You know, um, do you want to kind of go a little bit into the background of, yeah. I read you had an interview with a teammate uh, later on, and that's kind of how you became familiar with the story and kind of how you yeah. decided that, oh, this is something I want to pursue in this format. Yeah, exactly. I, I tried it in writing a lot, actually. Um, I was writing for the Daily Collegian, the student newspaper at the time, and um, I wanted to do a really good job of capturing how emotional people were when it came to Connor Darcy, when it came to his legacy, and when it came to the number 16. And I thought there was something really rare there. I, I don't think the concept of someone carrying on a Jersey number because a teammate died is rare. I don't think that's rare. What I think was rare was the fact that that emotion was carrying on so long to someone who never even met Connor Darcy and was emotional about it. Like that, there's some real power there. So through having those conversations with those teammates, I, I tried to, I tried to write my way to that emotional point that I could get in cinema and I couldn't do it. I think there are writers that can, I wasn't one of them. Um, at the same time, I had the skill set for creating documentary films. And even though <laughs> it was a very base skill set compared to what I feel like I've developed since then, um, it was enough to get me started and get in the room and start having these conversations on camera. So how extensive did that process get? Because I know obviously the the story kind of starts at really the beginning of Connor's life. And, you know, early yeah. is, you know, obviously 2012 to 2016 or 2015 was his Penn State career. So kind of when did you start that research process and kind of realize, you know, how big you want to go with this, how making it really about Connor's life and his impact? Yeah. So, you know, through the other projects I've done at Penn State, one aspect of it that was always frustrating was if you do a project with Penn State, it's a Penn State project. And that comes into, you know, factors of distribution that comes into factors of what you can actually say and do, especially when it's about a Penn State team. Um, and I didn't want to do that. I wanted to form my own production company and have it be owned by that production, have the asset be owned by that production company so I can make all the decisions. Um, so that process, learning that and developing that company was took, took a while, especially for someone who's never formed a company or, or had that experience. Once I had that down, I approached coach Tambroni and, and, you know, I'm, a, I guess, uh, either early junior year or late sophomore year and laid out my idea and said, I had the skill set, And, you know, by that time I built a ton of trust with coach Tambroni because, you know, if you cover a team like the lacrosse team, you're in there every week for an hour, um, just sitting down and basically talking with them, you know, and it, it's not even, it's not like covering the other teams. You're just sitting there and having a conversation. You know, you have, you have a couple of bullet list questions, but eventually you're going to get to just talking about life. And he was always so interesting when he was just talking about life. Um, so I had that trust from him. Uh, pitched the idea to him. He said, Hey, if the Darcy's are cool with it, then we're in. Um, and after talking to the Darcy's a couple times and, you know, eventually meeting them, um, they were all in too. And it just, it went on from there. How, how many interviews you mentioned it there? How many interviews did you met, end up doing with the Darcy family? And then I have a follow-up based uh, around that. 
Yeah. So I think it was 22 interviews total. Um, and then with just with the Darcy's, um, two with Teddy, one with Will, um, and then two with Miss Darcy and one with Bill. And they were very long, obviously. So the, the interview with Bill Darcy, Connor Darcy's father, I think it was four and a half hours. Um, and it was, uh, you know, because my, I guess technically my style would be, I don't want to feel like an interview. I don't want to feel like I'm sitting here reading you a list of questions. I kind of just want to sit there and talk. Um, and I think that that lent itself to the conversational tone of the film, I believe. Like the viewer there kind of feels like they're in a conversation with the family and you're, you're getting to um, the high point of grief and the recovery and, and the resilience. I, I feel like pretty naturally with them leading the conversation. So, so the follow-up to that then, you know, I remember, so full disclosure, I went and saw this uh, back in the Boston area uh, with you. You did some Q&As there mm -hmm. and you told this story about spending a night uh, yeah. at at the Darcy family home. Yeah. So I, I was just kind of curious, how how did you balance, you know, what you learned in school and what we were yeah. all taught, you know, with your journalistic ethics versus your genuine developing relationship with this family and the story you're trying to tell about their son and kind of how that relationship went about? That's such a great question. Um, and I'm also so glad you went to the Boston premiere. That was a ton of fun. Um, yeah, it, uh, I still am a, a huge believer in the kind of maintaining those journalistic ethics. I think it just, it protects the story. It protects your relationship with them. Cause you're saying, Hey, I'm, I'm coming in here and I'm, I'm telling the story that I'm told essentially. And I'm trying to give it, get as many perspectives as I can, but um, protecting that was really important. And I think initially in my initial thought, especially coming from a classroom setting was like, there has to be this hard line. It has to be very clear. You cannot accept even a beer with the person like, and it was, that was kind of my mindset going in. And within a couple months of doing this story, I thought, you know, it's, that's really unproductive thinking. Um, people gravitate towards people that just want to hang out and essentially be friends with them. And that doesn't mean you're diminishing the journalistic integrity of the product or anything. It's just, it's, it's being human. Um, and a lot of this is just sharing emotions. And if you're not, if you don't have developed trust with that, with that person, you're not going to be willing to share those emotions. So um, it, that was a mind shift, a mindset shift for me that uh, I'll probably carry on for a long time, because I think that, that, you know, hard and fast idea that you need to have this strict line. I, I don't think that's true, especially for documentary filmmaking. Now, if you're in the news and you're writing hard news, I think it is important to maintain that. Um, but if you're in Minecraft where you're, where we're trying to get to other ideas, we're trying to get to bigger emotional ideas rather than just factual ideas. I think you have to, you have to build that, um, kind of connection. And also the Darcy's are the easiest people to be friends with. They are a ton of fun. So that, that made that just a no brainer. Yeah. I love the, uh, I love the scooter story with Connor and, uh, like his dad gets behind oh, him yeah. or it just, you kind of get that, that, that friendliness. And I think you, you kind of brought it up, especially with kind of the nature of the story and, and how difficult it is to talk about a subject like that, kind of how, hmm. how are you able to navigate that and kind of, you know, obviously you, you start to feel some of those emotions yourself, I would think oh, yeah. when you're interviewing. So kind of balancing that in terms of still thinking about how am I going to tell this story that to, to me, it's a lot of pressure to kind of, you want to do it justice for something that means so much to so many people. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's the phase I'm in right now is, is doing it justice. You know, I don't think this will ever be something that, you know, 
makes an incredible amount of money or sees an incredible audience or, you know, blows up to be this giant thing like squid games or something. <laughs> like I, 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 I see the value in this in like, Hey, you gave me that kind of insight into your life. I'm going to give, I'm going to make sure that your, your kid's story is told. That's totally my driver right now for those interviews. Um, that it was really tough. It got tougher as time went on because I started to feel like I knew who Connor was and that was really difficult. You know, the scooter story and, seeing all their pictures and hearing the constant stories about Connor, you get to the point where you feel like, you know, someone, um, and then conversation after conversation with his best friends and his families and teammates, it, I, I started getting extremely emotional during the interviews. And I, I, I don't, I don't see how you wouldn't be able to, um, just being so close with those people. So that was really difficult. The first couple edits, I was bawling. I was a total mess because I was seeing it play out. Um, and that those that was difficult. I was also I also started editing at the beginning of the pandemic, so it's already a weirdly emotional time for everyone. So, um, yeah, that was that was challenging. But I don't know. I think it was Dickie V. It's like if you can be moved to tears, laughter, and whatever else every single day, then you've had a good day. So some very fulfilling days of like this is what it means to you know to be human. I want to get a little bit more. You mentioned the pandemic briefly, but navigating that kind of like how far along in the process were you what yeah. kind of were, were some of the biggest challenges you saw with you know really doing your own film with all those natural hurdles that it presents yeah that was a mess i was uh i was so dead set on the ending being the ending of that season um because penn state had a lot of really good players i mean basically the team that went to the national championship in the documentary was all coming back for the next season um, and they had some hiccups early in the season, but it was very clear they were the best team in the country. And I was sitting there thinking, well, we've got a national championship ending for this documentary. I mean, what a great thing. The The real bummer with documentary filmmaking is you can't write the ending until, you know, it, until it's over. Um, so that was, I mean, that was really difficult. And I, I was so upset. And how do I, how do I end this film now? And what note do I end it on? Um, and I, I'm, you know, I, I'm proud it ended on the note it did, which is the real value of the documentary, which is how to overcome this grief and turn, you know, turn a legacy into something really special, but also find joy every day when the most joyous person in your life is, is out of it. Um, so, and, and, you know, when I, when I really reflect on it, that's much more valuable than a dumb game where someone has more points than the other person. <laughs> Now, you mentioned you've done, you know, 22 interviews in total, ended up talking to a lot of people. Obviously, not all of it is going to make it into an hour and a half documentary. Oh, what yeah. was the yeah. best thing that you had to cut? Maybe it was the last thing you cut that you just yeah. you really didn't want to lose it, but you had to for time or other reasons just didn't fit the story, maybe. Yeah, that is like the absolute worst is having to cut stuff. I, I hate it. I think the first cut I had was like an hour 45 and I thought it should have been longer. I was so mad. I was like, I, there's so much more I need to put in this. Um, but you know, eventually I, you know, I, I got to my senses and I was like, okay, I need to cut this back and cut this back. And, you know, eventually you have to be <laughs> polite for people's time um, and not just sit there and, and have it be this never ending piece, um, which is a bummer. But yeah, uh, thinking of a specific scene I had to take out, you know, I, there's moments that I used to have that were really drawn out um, and they were, there were pauses and there were um, scenes that I let linger for a lot longer because my, I mean, a lot of it, I filmed Verite style, which is 
I'm just in the corner and hoping everyone forgets I'm there. And eventually they do forget I'm there. Um, and I'm just getting these intimate moments of pauses. And um, a lot of those took up a bulk of the time. And when I cut those down a little bit, it, it, it the story became more streamlined and I think, you know, more widely available for people to just digest in a night. Um, but for me, that was tough. Cause I was like, that's like, I work so hard for that one pause where they're thinking that one thought and they hold on it for, you know, five seconds or however long. Um, those, those are the things that really eat at me and be like, if I could just have an, the most patient audience in the world, I would keep the scene, you know, 20 minutes. All right, I, I have a question about the credits. Um, mm-hmm. I don't know if I'm reading into this wrong. Did I see original composition by Patty yeah. Cotter? Did you write yeah. your own music for this? So yeah. in wrote, addition to filmmaking, you were composing yeah. as well. Perfect. Yeah, it was um, the original composition. I had to pretty much learn how to do everything from you know the research to the composition to the editing to the production to the lighting to the, edit, you know, the color correction and you know some sound design stuff we have a great sound designer on it i don't want to take away from that but i had to learn a lot of those things um and then now in distribution so it was like if i didn't figure it out it wasn't going to happen if i didn't figure it, i couldn't pay a, a compositions guy so might as well learn how to do it um and you know by the end i think i developed the skill set to be able to pull off you know a documentary a simple you know i'm not doing anything crazy but a simple documentary music composition um and I'm, I'm pretty proud of how that turned out especially for how the first couple tracks sounded which was like like just terrible um but uh yeah it's it, it's amazing the crap you have to do when you're trying to start a career for sure the documentary is 16 we will have it linked in the show notes of this episode for people to go check out uh now that 16 is wrapped and it is out people are watching it what what's kind of what's next well have you started to look toward the next project have you already started on the next project maybe you're like there's a bunch of ideas what's kind of next for you i never lack ideas i have a notebook that i carry around with me all day i think i put in at least two a day and that's not even like i'm not even like supposed to i wish i had less ideas but every single day i'm like that would be the greatest documentary of all time the problem with you know the problem with covid yeah, that's such a funny way to start a sentence. The what a loaded, COVID loaded is, answer. Oh, documentary filmmakers, I feel like we're getting ignored in this entire thing. Um, <laughs> uh, you know, a big part of documentary filmmaking we've talked about today um, is being in a person's house, having a beer with them, really interacting and getting to know this person before you ever press record. I think that process is unbelievably important. Um, the pandemic has defined fear of the other. We're supposed to fear a person being in our house. Um, for a documentary filmmaker, it's impossible to start a story with that mindset. There's already a mistrust of you just because you're a person. <laughs> like that's that was really difficult. So a bunch of false starts through um, through COVID, trying to get projects started. You know, I think we're going to start it. I think we're going to start it, and then the numbers spike. The person gets scared, and we're out of it. Um, that's been a real challenge. I I am glad to say things are definitely opening back up. Opportunities are opening up again. Um, and I can't talk about anything specifically, unfortunately, because I'm working with other parties on it. Um, but yes, I am, I'm, I'm ready to go for, for the next thing for sure. And stay tuned. <laughs> <laughs> One more question on my end. You said 
and this jumped out to me. You said every time you watch a documentary, you watch a documentary twice because you just thought it was so good. Yeah. I need to know then what are the Patty Cotter oh, documentary man. recommendations? Okay. It can be one. It can be multiple. No, I, I see, it can't just out. be one. You knew it wasn't going to be He's one. He's got a book full of ideas. I yeah, have a book got. full. Okay. I'll, it's, I, I have a list for different people. I even have it in my notes, which I, I could pull up, but it's almost too obnoxious. I have like a starter pack, like, okay, you're new to documentary film. I don't want to throw you to the wolves yet. We'll give you the starter pack. I think in there you have free solo. It's like, if you don't love free solo, you're never going to love a great movie. So might as well just find another hobby. Um, and then Icarus, which I think is just a great, in, you know, investigative, um, you know, finding, you're starting off with a pretty simple idea and then just following this rabbit hole into a huge political thing. And um, you can say he got lucky, but the, the director pulled it off. Like he, he was given the ball and he sunk the shot. So um, that's a great little starter pack. I think if you start getting more advanced, it might not seem like it's advanced because it's already so popular, but last chance you, if you watch it from the perspective of these care of character arc development, it's actually really complex and they're actually starting the season with the ideas they know they're going to finish with. So that one's worth definitely worth a rewatch because you're thinking, oh, it's just a football documentary. We're just going to see if they win or lose these games. It essentially has nothing to do with the games. It's all the character arc and whether or not they're going to you know, blow up their lives or not. Um, I was trying to think of, of something maybe a little more complex. Uh, Blackfish. We're not, we're not going to judge you, your taste. Don't worry. Yeah, we're not. <laughs> yeah, I've, I've got some pretty out there taste. I mean, if you're getting into sports documentaries, you have to watch Hoop Dreams because that's the start of the start. Um, Blackfish is a great investigative one. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I could I could go on and on forever. Uh, well, go sorry, why we're in the, the yeah, realm? Yeah, we're gonna be we're, I'm gonna be talking for two hours straight if you ask me about this. Well, why why we're in the realm? A documentary I know Tom and I have talked a lot about. I think not on on the podcast because we weren't doing the podcast while it was airing was The Last Dance. Yeah. What yeah. was your thoughts on The Last Dance in terms of documentary filmmaking? Because from my perspective, it felt slanted yeah. clearly toward a Michael Jordan perspective because he was one of the producers on yeah. it. So, of course, it was going to take that that slant. What, what were kind of your thoughts as it was airing? Yeah, I think um, I'm almost like the uh, like a weird, like those annoying like jazz music enthusiasts. I'm like, I'm like, oh yeah, okay. This this Taylor Swift song is great, but you should hear, you know, some random '30s jazz artist. Like, I I, I have that approach to the Last Dance because it, it it is so good. But I watch it, and I'm like, it's 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 like Taylor Swift. It's just like it's it's so good, and yeah, damn it, we know it's so good. And he he knocked it out. You know, Jason A here is is this awesome documentary filmmaker, and he he knocked it out of the park. He was given this big budget and went above and beyond for that budget. I think the Michael Jordan thing is interesting and it goes back to the journalistic conversation we were having earlier. Um, according to, to Jason Hayer, and I've, I've no, you know, no reason to, to think he'd be lying about this. Jordan didn't have all that much of a, a say in the actual, I mean, he had a say, he could have stepped in and say, don't do those things, but he never actually used that power. Now you could say, well, you know, even just having that looming, maybe they made different decisions. Um, I also don't think it was that kind of story where, you know, it was, it was kind of just the story of the team. It wasn't, they weren't doing, it wasn't a political documentary. So, you know, saying there's a slant and all these things, I, I think that's, that's kind of tough because um, I mean, there's, there wasn't a narrator. It was essentially just interviews. Um, I, I think it's a great piece, but when I think of like 
the ultimate ones in my mind that I rewatch again and again. It, it's not there because I think it's like unreachable. It's an unreachable budget. It's an unreachable story with unreachable characters. Um, I kind of like the the little guy, the little story, pulling it off in a super unexpected way. That's that's kind of more of the stories that, that get me going. So again, I could talk about The Last Dance forever because that's, that's everyone's... I, I think what The Last Dance did that's really impressive, 30 for 30 is hurting. They, they haven't put out anything interesting in a long time that's inspired people. I think when they first, when 30 for 30 first came out, it was this super ins- inspirational thing, especially for me of like, you can do this as a career. You can make sports stories into movies. Like I doubt that's amazing. Um, this kind of reinvigorated the interest in sports documentaries, especially because of its timing during the pandemic, people just became a lot more interested. Um, so in that way, it serves a huge purpose. Do you kind of see yourself staying in sports? I know you mentioned, obviously, the human emotion of it, kind of the taking something that all of us love and, yeah. and rooting for the little guy, like you mentioned, the underdog. You ever thought about like kind of branching outside of sports, or do you just does that really resonate with you, the fact that there is this beauty, this human emotion to find yeah. in what really amounts to a simple game? Yeah, that's amazing. I think two things about that. One, sports is really stupid. I, I, I'm a huge believer that sports are unbelievably stupid. I love sports. I'm dedicating my life to being a sports documentary filmmaker. Sports are unbelievably stupid. It's one large man trying to put the ball in a hoop against another large man. Like that's, that's dumb. That is dumb. There's no way to make it not dumb. Except for the fact that we put so much feeling and emotion and tie so much of our being, especially if you're in sports, to the outcomes of games and to how players play and to how the underdog does. Um, that makes it the most important thing in the world, in my opinion. Um, because the only thing that matters in life at all is what you attach to it, the meaning that you attach to it. And the meaning that we, especially as a culture in America, attach to sports is really, really special. And I love that about sports. And that's why I want to do it. The second thing about that, um, narratively, it gives you an excuse for an audience to watch till the end you start off with this interesting concept of this team is trying to win a game. We're going to find out if they win. Now, what you get to do, I feel like if you're a really crafty storyteller, what you get to do is input a lot of meaning and character arc like last chance you does. I mean, you're, you're watching last chance. You is this team going to win a championship by the end? You don't really even care if they win a championship. You care of whether or not that kid is going to drop out of school and go back to, you know, and a completely underserved community or go to a college where he can get a full education. That's really what you care about. And you're following that story arc. So it's, it's a great excuse for a filmmaker and it gives us a great narrative backbone to attach a lot of stories to that people will be comfortable watching that they probably wouldn't be comfortable watching in another format. If it was a political documentary or just a personal story about someone, you, you get to do a lot more because an audience will trust, hey, we're going to know by the end what the outcome is. That is Patty Cotter. He is the director of 16. Patty, before you go, just kind of wanted to give you a chance here at the end to kind of plug anything other than the documentary, which again will be linked in the show notes of this episode. You can also plug the documentary once again, but anything you want to plug here at the end. Yeah, I'm just going to go with full steam ahead on, on 16. I'm a huge believer in the story. Um, you know, it's an independent distribution. So, the only people that go to it are people that are told about it. Um, so, you know, I'm, I'm glad you guys enjoyed it. I hope you were, you know, you took something home from it. Um, if, you know, my goal is eventually, and I, I said this in Boston, 
you know, someone who doesn't have a relation to Penn State, doesn't have a relation to Boston, doesn't have a relation even to lacrosse, to watch that story and take home the message of what it, keep, what it means to keep a legacy alive and, and how you can overcome grief and, and find joy. Um, that's, that's a powerful message worth spreading. Um, so that's, yeah, I'm just going to stick with, with 16 full steam ahead. Patty, real quick too, what is, uh, where can people find you? I'm, I'm going to link you in the description, but awesome. where can people find you if they want to keep um, up with you? I'm on Instagram at, at Patty Cotter Doc. I hate social media, full disclosure. Um, and I'm still trying to figure it out because I've, I'm realizing now, like it's stupid of me to just ignore the potential to share the story with more people. So I'm going to get around to posting more things. So if you follow me at, at Patty Cotter Doc on, um, Instagram. And then I think I'm just Patty Cotter on, on Twitter. There's the only two places I post or LinkedIn, I guess. If you <laughs> or LinkedIn. That, that'd be quite the place for people to go and try and find you. All that's <laughs> going to be linked in the show notes of this episode or in the description, depending on where you are watching or listening to this. Patty, want to thank you once again for joining us. The documentary is 16 streaming everywhere now. All right, once again, thank you to Patty Cotter. Again, excellent interview. He has a very great documentary out. I'm going to plug it one more time. 16, the documentary is available now wherever you... I was going to say wherever you can stream things, but I know it's on like a specific platform. So again, the link to it is going to be in the show notes of this episode. This is why I call myself Grade A Professional Podcaster. We missed a chance though. We, uh, we got to get him back on and ask if he wants to compose a there's a lot going on soundtrack for us so we'll see if there's a deal that could be worked out there you know Food listen we, can, we can't do too much because the intro is already made by a friend shout out to carrie the homie i told him we've been that. looking for some cash or trash music though i think so this is true i am could still be in the market for something i'm actively searching for cash or trash mu- music so this is actually like a very good call by you uh Tom, let's let's get into some of the big stories this week, going away completely from what we've been talking about so far. The biggest story easily this week, I think, was Aaron Rodgers. So Aaron Rodgers, to get people up to date for those who do not know, he tested positive for COVID-19 earlier in the week, and it was announced almost immediately that he was going to miss the game Sunday against the Chiefs. That was very unusual because as far as we had known, he was vaccinated. And so what we were led to believe was that if he had two negative tests within, I think, 24, 48 hours of each other, he would be eligible to play in that game. Instead, though, we came to find he is unvaccinated, which created a whole slew of issues because he came out and said that he was, quote, immunized during the offseason. He later said on the Pat McAfee show that... He would have clarified that if he had gotten follow-up questions, which I think is total BS. But Tom, before we get too into it, again, he went on to the Pat McAfee show. He had a lot to say about the treatments he's been doing and why he made this decision. Essentially, what it comes down to is he wanted to get Johnson & Johnson. There was the clotting issue, so he didn't get that one. He believed in some false, I would like to add false, stories about infertility and the mRNA vaccines. And so he decided he was not going to be vaccinated. He did quote unquote homopathic treatments. I don't really know what that means. And that is how he's been dealing with this. So Tom, I would like to know just your initial reaction to all things Aaron Rodgers. As far as I know, he took a presentation to the NFL back in August and basically laid out these are the reasons, kind of like you said, why I shouldn't, why I'm not going to be vaccinated. You know, these are the risks, these, whatever research he's done. And they told him no. 
my, my gut reaction was, and I think 31 other teams' front offices are probably saying this with me, like, how is this something that isn't resolved by now? I, I would have felt like you would either know if someone is vaccinated or not. Like, to me, it's a very black and white thing, and I'm not really sure how, you know, the Packers, the league, whoever it may be, like, let it go so long where they just kind of took Aaron Rodgers' word for it. Like, I feel like with something as serious as this, there's got to be a better a better vetting process, and I feel like there wasn't for some reason. I, I think with all the fuss that was made about, oh, this is how we're going to handle vaccinated players. If they catch COVID, they test positive, whatever. This is how we're going to handle unvaccinated. Why you don't already have someone categorized into one of the two going into the season, which that was the biggest mind-boggling thing to me. Well, I, I didn't get that takeaway at all because from my understanding, he was classified as unvaccinated. There was no question as to what category he was classified into. My big issue with this whole story is Aaron Rodgers lied and then doubled down on his lying. He lied when he sat there and says, I am immunized because he knew what that connotation meant. He knew saying I'm immunized of course everyone's going to think that means you're vaccinated. Why would we have any reason to believe otherwise? So to me, there is no question of what category he fell into. And the difference to me between someone like Aaron Rodgers and say Lamar Jackson, Carson Wentz, Kirk Cousins, that group of quarterbacks, is those guys have never lied to us. Those guys have sat there front and center and said, I believe it's a personal decision. I do not want to get vaccinated for X, Y, Z, you know, personal decision, personal decision. That's what they say. Lamar Jackson's had it twice and still won't get vaccinated. Aaron Rodgers lied. Aaron Rodgers sat up there and did not want to face the backlash of the joke we made earlier of the quote unquote woke mob. When in reality, like this was a hundred percent an avoidable situation. All he had to do was go up there and say, I am not vaccinated. Period. End of story. Instead, he's been on sidelines, without mask, a breaking of NFL protocol for players who are unvaccinated. He has been at press conferences, unmasked, a breaking of NFL protocols, and by the way, putting other people at risk who are vaccinated, who are just doing their job as reporters. So selfish decision once again from Aaron Rodgers. He has now put his team in a bad spot because now not only is he out for a game, maybe more, He may be suspended, and there's the potential now where he, how do I put this delicately, he he may be fined handsomely for what he's done because he was skirting the protocols so obviously and so flippantly. To me, it's one thing to be unvaccinated. It's another to spit in the face of what has been laid out for you by the league and has been agreed upon by the Players Association. You are part of the Players Association. You have agreed to these rules. It is what it is. Like, you have to follow these rules. He went to a Halloween party, which is pretty clearly where this spread amongst the Packers because, you know, Devontae Adams was out with COVID. He was out with COVID. I think there was another player who was out with COVID. Clearly, this is where it spread. And he is seen maskless around other people. Again, clear violation of the NFL protocols. Either we're going to uphold these rules and Aaron Rodgers is going to be suspended or we're just going to let him get away with it because he's Aaron Rodgers. Like, this is absolutely ridiculous to me. And to me, supports 100% why the the Green Bay Packers drafted Jordan Love and kind of want to move on from Aaron Rodgers. He's a headache. He's clearly a liar. And I would not want to deal with this on my team. Well, yeah, the writing's been on the wall the entire offseason with, 
the, the various contracts disputes that they had, you know, Aaron Rodgers, is he going to come back? What is his future holding? It, it's always been kind of, you get a sense of my way or the highway, Aaron Rodgers versus the Green Bay Packers. And I think it should be more black and white than it is. Like, why is all this gray area here when, oh, if you clearly know he isn't vaccinated, then why is he at the press conferences maskless? Why is he with his teammates maskless when you have these protocols you clearly know or didn't know that he was back. Like, how do you let that slip through the cracks, I guess? is. I guess that's my thing is like they knew and didn't do anything about it. So this is also on the Packers on some way is basically where I'm That's what I'm saying. Like, 31 other teams, like that's where the frustration comes in, where it's like you got guys on other teams that you're playing against too. You've got your own teammates that you're putting at risk. Who knows, you know, what kind of underlying conditions their family members have if any of them have newborn children you know there's a there's a plethora of things that come into play here with you would think a guy who went to cal would be smarter and it, it is just kind of that i'm aaron Rodgers, i do what i want and maybe he took it a little bit too far here he did take a little bit too far here well a cu- couple of different takes i have there one if i'm that receiver for the bills who was getting fined for being maskless around the bills facility and then eventually i forget his name but beasley no, no, not Beasley, because he still hasn't been vaccinated. It was the other one. There was a Bills wide receiver. He was maskless around the facility. He kept getting fined, basically forced them to get the vaccine. If I'm that guy, I'm pissed. Because Aaron Rodgers skirted these protocols, hasn't really been fined yet, and has still not been forced to do anything. And so if I'm that guy, I'm, I'm real pissed. Like, I am very upset with everything that is going on right now. But on top of that, the other major takeaway I had when I heard this story, because I never really knew how this went down, why it was the way it was. I kind of figured Aaron Rodgers had good reasons for it. I'm convinced that the reason Aaron Rodgers doesn't talk to his family is because he's the crazy one. Everyone has that one person in the family who's a little crazy. It's Aaron Rodgers and his family because he doesn't talk to his family. And I'm now more convinced than ever that his family is normal and he's the crazy one. You know, he, he spouts all this independent thinker. I think on my own. I do my own thing. I'm sorry. You're a part of an NFL team. You have to follow certain rules and guidelines if your goal truly is to win a Super Bowl, which I now have to question whether or not it was because I have done it with every other player who has been unvaccinated. Every other player who's been unvaccinated, I've come on this podcast and questioned not only all their stuff about do they care about health safety, blah, blah, blah. I've tried to keep a lot of that talk to a minimum because we try and keep it straight. Like, what is the sports? Obviously, he didn't care about any of that as well. But he clearly also didn't care about winning because he knew what would happen if he tested positive. And now here he is, sidelined. They had to put Jordan Love out there today. They barely lost because the Chiefs are just the shell of the the team that we knew up to this point. But to me, this is a clear, flippant disregard of NFL rules. Aaron Rodgers should be fined. He should be suspended. And that's going to cost his team in the long run, which makes me question whether or not he even cares that much about winning, which if I'm a team that wants to sign Aaron Rodgers, this is a major, major, major red flag to me. Yeah, it's he is kind of turning into the the selfish NFL player. I think he, he right now is exemplifying that more than anybody else. And you see, like you mentioned, Kirk Cousins and Jackson. Yeah, at least they were honest about it. At least they were up front with, hey, you know, I'm not doing this for whatever reason. And Roger, you know, I said he's a smart guy, but maybe not. He's stayed in Green Bay for so long. He's the best quarterback in the league. You probably would have thought he could have done better, but they've only won one <laughs> ring. So does he really want to win? I mean, they probably would have picked up a second Super Bowl by now if he wanted to win. 
He listens to the Joe Rogan podcast. That makes me question how smart he is. I mean, if he had gone up there and said, I heard these things, oh, there's a lot going on, then okay, okay. Then then I'd have to I'd have to listen to him. That's clearly a smart man who has good taste in podcasts. But he's spouting off Joe Rogan conspiracy theories. Come on. You really? saw McAfee You're- like try not to laugh when he was saying that, right? Pat McAfee, it took everything in his power to not lose his mind during that. You could just see it on his face. Cause, well, all right, that's it, it kind of ties into the Patty conversation about like journalistic integrity. Like, oh, you want to have these Aaron Rodgers weekly well, he's interviews. Not a, but, he's not a journalist. Well, McAfee, like, at least like trying to have guests, that kind of thing, like building relationships. Like you have this guy that's spewing what you disagree with, but it's like you want to have that access every week. So like there is that fine line. But to, but to me, right, that is the difference between Pat McAfee and I'm trying to think of like a notable reporter right now who who does like great breaking news journalism. I'm having a really hard to help me out here, Tom. Great breaking news journalist. I'm. You want like politics? Anyone. Like Tapper? I don't know. Sure. That is the difference between a Pat McAfee and a Jake Tapper. Pat McAfee is a former NFL player who is not doing any investigating, not looking for any stories he's just there to have a good time talk a little bit have some guests on maybe they'll drink some beers do some crazy things you know it's whatever they're just they're just there to i don't to pal around that's the word i'll use i was going to use another terminology that had a profanity in it and i just didn't want to go through the editing process so he just wants to pal around Jake Tapper is going to interview you. He's going to have a research team. They're going to dive deep into if you have a book or something. They're going to read the book. They're going to take notes on the book. They're going to have questions prepared. And if you say something that's not true, he's going to call you on it. That's just not what it is for a lot of these players turned podcasters. I mean, like think about the hot water Shannon Sharp got into because he had Julio Jones. He called him, didn't tell him he was on air. And then he was like, man, I'm trying to get out of Atlanta. That's a clear breach of journalistic ethics. But Shannon Sharp is not a journalist. So I, I can't hold him to <laughs> he that same care, yeah. yeah. He doesn't care about any of that stuff in the same way you or I might care about that stuff. So I, I'm not really going to hold Pat McAfee's feet to the fire on this one because to me, this isn't on him. Like he, he got us answers we were all looking for, and I'm very happy about that. This is 100% about Aaron Rodgers, who, let's just be honest. There was a chance you could have died from this. It's COVID-19. People are still dying who are unvaccinated. There was somebody who literally back home lives up the street from me and my family who just died in the last week and a half because he was unvaccinated. It is the reality still of this situation that people are dying every single day because they are not vaccinated, which gives me perfect opportunity before we segue into our next segment. If you have not done so already, if our pleas have not heard you up to this point, please, 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 if you are unvaccinated, go get vaccinated. There is an approved vaccine from Pfizer that you can go get right now that is going to cut your risk of hospitalization and death down significantly. I have I have gotten my Johnson & Johnson vaccine. I got my booster vaccine about a week ago now. And I am just okay. I am fine. And I feel great about things now. Please, please, please go get vaccinated. Don't be Aaron Rodgers because I don't want to have to slander you in the same way you just heard me slander Aaron Rodgers. Is it slander though? Because it's really just talking about the I don't facts. know if it's slander. I, I wish the vaccine like improved your takes a little bit. I, w- I wish that was a side effect, but you know, can't have everything. Uh, maybe it is a side effect and I just didn't experience it. Like you, you never know. 
Tom, speaking of improved takes, I would like to, before we go too far, I would like to double back to a take I had a couple weeks ago on a more lighthearted note. I have been very critical of one Josh Allen throughout his career. I said if he had beaten the Chiefs, I would call him a good quarterback, potentially elite. I think I came on here and said he's a top five quarterback. Tom, we are reversing course. We are going back in their direction. I should have come on here and said, you know, if Josh Allen can't beat the Jacksonville Jaguars, I'm going to come on here and say he's a bad quarterback. I did not foresee that happening, though. And so I didn't feel a need to proclaim that. Josh Allen lost today 9-6 to to the Urban Meyer-led Jacksonville Jaguars. That is the biggest indictment of Josh Allen's career. He had multiple turnovers that cost them this game and played downright horrible. You gave up 9 points to the Jacksonville Jaguars and you couldn't do better than 6? So we are back off on Josh Allen. Josh Allen is once again... He showed you today the thing I've been telling you on this podcast so often is that in big moments, I will not trust Josh Allen. He is going to turn the ball over. He's going to do something really boneheaded, and you can't beat the Jacksonville Jaguars. That It is what it is. Josh Allen back in David Oro's doghouse. You many of the Buffalo Bill wins have been by one score this year? Multiple? Zero. They've won zero games by one score. Every one score game they've played has been a loss. That is an indictment on your quarterback and your head coach, for that matter. I, I can't let you get away with that. I can't let you sell your soul to Josh Allen being a great quarterback and then backing off on it a week later. Like, have some conviction for once. That, that first is, of all, not, not is, a week is this later. A final answer. Or are you just gonna let? You're just gonna. You're just gonna be week by week with Josh Allen. No, no, no. The final answer is I am going to be anti-Josh Allen. I've decided. There is nothing he can do at this point that can make me feel otherwise. If he's in a Super Bowl, I will pick the other team. I, I'm going all in. If on he the wins a Super Allen. Bowl, are you pro Josh Allen? No, we are. We will still be anti Josh so Allen. The, he is irredeemable at this point. Basically, I'm gonna I'm gonna pull a full Stu Gatz here in my personal record book. Unless he does something that I deem to be redeemable during the Super Bowl, he will not have any Super Bowls in my personal record book. That's how it's going to work from this point forward. He's got to prove it to get a Super Bowl in my personal record book. I like how he proved it and then unproved it. That That's hard to do is, is two weeks later unprove it. It's hard to disagree with you, too, after the performance against the 2-6 and six Jaguars. I'm going to his losses this year. Tell me if you think any of these teams are good. He lost week one to the Steelers, where he, again, boneheaded decision after boneheaded decision. He lost to the Tennessee Titans because he slipped and fell trying to QB sneak. That's on I'm not Josh gonna, I'm not going to vilify him for that one, but... I'm going to... I might not vilify him. Also, it's been like three weeks since the Chiefs game, I just like to say. And then he lost to the Jaguars. Sprinkled in the middle of all that is barely beating the, the Dolphins. A 15-point win against the Dolphins is not very impressive to me. That's barely beating the Dolphins in my personal It's a personal cover, though. It's book. a cover. He might have... Co- hey, you know what they say. Good teams win, great teams cover. So I don't know what that says about the Bills because they lost to the Jags, but that is where we are right now with Josh Allen until he... I need unequivocal postseason proof that he's a great quarterback, and then we'll see. I will determine later what that is. We'll determine on the fly what is unequivocal proof. But as of right now... I don't think they're a Super Bowl contender, and I don't think he is a top five quarterback. Tom, with this in mind, this was a real uh, a gut check moment for me. And that leads us to our next segment that you have so aptly named 
Nut Check November. We're about halfway through the season now, a, a little less technically than halfway through the season because they decided to change from a nice round number of 16 to a terrible, uneven number of 17. Oh, but even number of weeks in the season, though. So we're through nine weeks of 18. So we're more equally halfway through now. Checkmate. Oh, checkmate. Good job by you because I didn't realize that. So we are exactly halfway through the season. Tom, it is time for Nut Check November. We're going to go through a couple of different things that you have prepared for us, and we are going to see where we stand. It's takes we had at the beginning of the year, and we're going to see if we still feel that way. Go ahead, Tom. Start us off. Um, I, I, You mentioned Buffalo Bills, not Super Bowl contenders. If my memory serves me right, you had an all-LA Super Bowl. Is that correct? Your no, you had Rams not- Chiefs. I did. Um, you had the Rams winning it, or you had the Chiefs winning it? I had it? the Chiefs winning. Uh, so I want, how are we feeling about those two teams right now? Are you, are you are you pushing the chips back in on the Rams and the Chiefs? I'm pushing the chips farther in on the Rams, which is, this is a perfect segue for me. The chips are all the way out on the Chiefs. Defense is bad. Patrick Mahomes is too turnover prone this year. They just don't look like the Chiefs we've seen in year, years past. And I don't know what's going on there. It's a very unusual situation there in Kansas City. They're winning games and like they're, I, I think now they're in the playoff hunt in the AFC because the AFC is so weird this year. But I would not feel good about this team making the Super Bowl. They have not been impressive in any sense of the word. But the, the Rams, I feel really good about. I think they could win the NFC. Tom, I texted you earlier in the week that I had a take this week that could be shocking. Because of the Aaron Rodgers news and because of a lot of the other teams that are in contention, like Josh Allen, for example, I didn't know who I should be rooting for right now actively. Who Who is the team I should be actively rooting for? My thing with the Rams, I find it hard to root for the Rams because I've kind of been anti-Sean McVay up to this point, which, by the way, I was wrong on. Seeing Jared Goff in Detroit, like, Sean McVay is an excellent head coach. The fact he got that out of Jared Goff, got the Super Super Bowl Bowl appearance out of that, yeah. Holy crap. I don't know how he, I don't know what magic hat he pulled that out of, but he, he should be in the Hall of Fame right now because of that, what he was able to do with Jared Goff. But, you know, I, I feel like there's no one on that team I really want to root for. I feel like Jalen Ramsey's kind of a guy hard to root for. Aaron Donald's kind of cool, but, like, they're not really pulling me in. Tom, the team I am actively rooting for to win the Super Bowl is the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. The Tom Brady-led Tampa Bay Buccaneers. There's one guy on that team who is wildly unlikable. His name's Antonio Brown. Outside of that, that team is wildly likable as a man who I like Tom Brady, but like has actively rooted against him in various Super Bowls and games during the regular season. People really hate on Tom Brady. I'm rooting for Tom Brady to win another Super Bowl. It's boring. People don't want him to win another one, but it feels inevitable at this point. He is Thanos. He is inevitable. He's gonna. He, I think he might win the Super Bowl again this year. You're rooting for it because it feels inevitable? I'm rooting for it because they're the only team that is likable. That's a bad take. They're the only likable team. I don't think any of the other teams who could, who could win are likable. I love the Los Angeles Rams. So I think I don't. I don't I, they're much more likable than the Tampa Bay Buccaneers who just won the Super Bowl last year. People hate Tom Brady because Tom Brady isn't their quarterback, let's be honest. That's the reason they true. hate Tom Brady. New England fans loved Tom Brady and everybody else hated him because all they did was win, which by process of elimination means nobody else was winning. So I, I, I have mixed bag of emotions on Tom Brady, obviously. I think my, my ultimate where I landed on him was 
there's nothing more I, as a Patriots fan, could have asked of Tom Brady while he was with the Patriots than what was delivered. So I, I really can't complain about anything that Tom Brady does now because he's proven himself. I, that being said, I don't like repeat champions. I find it hard to, in my heart, root for a team that just won the Super Bowl last year to win it again. And so I'm out on Tampa. Are they, are they the best team in the NFC right now? Maybe, but I don't, that, that's not me. Real quick, just to add on to it, it, it really, like, I'm not even kidding. The ultimate decision for me came down to I was thinking about COVID 19 and the fact he has come out like pro vaccine. And at the same time, they were the first team to 100% vaccination. I just, I just want that team to win. There's something about that whole story that I want them to win. I will say, Antonio Brown winning another Super Bowl kind of does leave a sour taste in my mouth. So maybe I am with you. Like, like the way I think of it is Rams 1A. Bucks 1B. Everyone else is in a distant second. Back to Nutcheck November, though. All right, so let me... I had what the, was your Super I had the Los Angeles Rams over the Cleveland Browns in the Super Bowl. My Browns take looked a lot worse 12 hours ago than it does now. The offense finally got it going today against, granted, fraudulent Cincinnati Bengals, I think, as we can all safely say now after the Jets' performance last week. You want to talk about bad Bills losses, we're talking about bad Bengals losses. It's the Bengals. They have a history of this. That's what I'm saying, yeah. So it, it's, you know, they are who we thought they were, as Dennis Green once said with the Cincinnati Bengals. So Cleveland, you know, however much stake you want to put in that. The issue I'm, I'm, I'm finding myself with is, especially with the Derrick Henry injury in Tennessee now, there just isn't a good football team in the AFC. So why back down on the Cleveland Browns now when, in my mind, they have as good a shot as anybody to make it to the Super Bowl out of the AFC? And obviously, I think the Los Angeles Rams are the best team in football. Oh, by the way, they added Von Miller to the defense that might have already been the best in football. So checkmate. I'm all in on the Rams, and I'm still all in on the Browns. Um, so let's go specific teams now. I want team that you were the most right about i'm gonna call this the statue take because it was so good that, that there's a lot going on headquarters we're building a statue to david Arroyo because of how correct you were about this team so one you were really correct about and one that you flubbed completely wrong about it might be easier to start with completely wrong about the issue is i'm not i'm not really a team i was completely right about is not coming to mind right now i mean like the obvious one is the rams like I thought they had best team in the NFC written all over them. I thought it was either them or the Bucks, and that looks largely right right now. So I, I'm gonna, I guess I'll double down on the Rams. I, I thought the Rams were clearly gonna be one of the best teams in the NFC. You know what? I'll stay in the NFC because there was a reason I was wrong on this one, and I think I'm gonna be proven right by the end of the season because I don't think this team is as good on defense as we as people think they are. So far, though, this season, I've been wrong about the Dallas Cowboys. I did not pick them to win the NFC East. I, if I'm not mistaken, said I thought Washington. Oh, there, there's another team I was super wrong on. I thought they had a better, the best shot in the division to win was Washington. And Dallas, at every turn, has been clearly the best team in the NFC East and has been one of the best teams in football so far this season. Now, laid a bit of an egg today against the Denver Broncos. A bit. But I would say still, overall, they were the team I was probably the most wrong about. You hit mine. Uh, the Washington football team, I was singing praises at the beginning of the season. I 
thought Chase Young would get better in year two. He's regressed. Certainly the defense isn't quite what we thought it was. They're sitting at two and six, so not really looking good for my NFC East champion. So I, I, I thought they were going to build a little bit more off of last year's success. I think the New Orleans Saints are a playoff team, though, and I'll, I'll double down on that. I, I, I got some eye rolls, tough performance today, but big win over the Bucks. I like them to make the playoffs, so I, I'm proud of my Saints take. You definitely got some eye rolls over on this end. I, I definitely thought that was a bit of a ridiculous take, and I was pretty wrong about them, too. I was wrong about a, a well, few teams. Without Jameis, it, it's going to be a tough sledding, but we'll see. Without the MVP? I mean, the, the LASIK worked. That's all I'm saying. The LASIK worked. All right, David. Um, that being said, revisions. It sounds like you don't want the Chiefs anymore. Do you have an AFC favorite now? I'm kind of with you. There's like no good option whatsoever in the AFC. I this this leads into our next topic a little bit. So I'm gonna tie my wagon to this one. If OBJ goes to the New England Patriots, I'm gonna pick them to come out of the AFC. I think they are I think the defense is legit. And Mac Jones is that kind of quarterback who he makes he's made some rookie mistakes, don't get me wrong. But we saw at Alabama that all you really need him to do, get the ball to weapons, don't screw up. The defense will help you out, we'll be alright. Just none of these AFC teams are very convincing to me. If OBJ is a New England Patriot, I'm going to say that the New England Patriots are going to win the AFC, which I can't believe I'm saying that because I am, you know me, I am not a Mac Jones guy. But I, I that is going to be my official prediction right now. If I had to like throw my hat in another ring just because, I guess the Chargers, but they've been so like up and down. They're 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 the roller as roller coastery as a roller co- as an NFL team gets like all over the place week to week. I don't know what I'm getting from that team. I know what I'm getting from Justin Herbert, but that offense has been mediocre to say the least. A certain team in New England just went to LA and beat the Chargers last week. Yeah. So it's kind of like the the Patriots, I wouldn't say have really looked impressive in any of their wins to the, to this point. You know, they're sitting at five and four. They have two wins over the Jets. They've been steady. That's the, been that, that's steady. the point. Yeah, they've been Kind of what the Patriots have been for years, just without Tom Brady with Mac Jones at the helm. So the, the the same identity is there, and it's not it's not sexy football by any means, but it wins games. You know, they they scored twenty four points against Carolina. And Mac Jones threw the ball eighteen times today. That's it. They still had more than half the possession. They had a pick six. You know, they they made Sam Darnold uncomfortable. Belichick feasting on young quarterbacks yet again, and. The AFC is littered with young quarterbacks, especially if you look at the postseason. Like someone like Justin Herbert, that's going to be nightmarish if they match up against the Patriots. Well, a couple of things I want to add there. Not only are there no good teams in the AFC that I look around and go, that team is definitely going to win the AFC. But the one team I do think could win the AFC is the Ravens. And I don't trust their secondary. They've been getting gashed like big play after big play this year. And I just, I can't trust the team who gives up big plays that frequently and their wins against the, like their win against the chiefs was by a possession. What their win against, they had another big win that I'm just now blanking on, but it was also bills. 
Like, that's what I thought. It was by, like, a possession. It's like they're they're barely beating teams. I will say, though, even though I've pulled my chips out from this team, if the Chiefs were suddenly in the Super Bowl because they figured it out offensively, I wouldn't be surprised because the AFC is just not good. So it's, yeah, I, I think whoever wins the NFC is going to win the Super Bowl. Let's put it that way. Yeah, I think, I think I'd probably go Chargers are, are probably the most talented team right now and maybe maybe playing the best. It doesn't really say much. I mean, the Ravens, I feel like Justin Tucker is winning them every game. They had the overtime win over the over the Vikings today. You know, they barely beat the Lions on an NFL record field goal. Like they're they're squeaking by just as much as anybody else. And it feels like it's really out there. The interesting thing is if you're kind of going one to thirty two what rank is the first AFC team? Like five, six? I mean, the one person who you may argue could win it, the Titans are currently up 21 to three on Sunday Night Football. So uh, maybe they're the favorites in the AFC, but without Derrick Henry, I just don't feel like they're going to get there. Maybe I'm naive in thinking that, but I, I don't. The AFC is, this is the hardest conference to call in a long time for me going to be interesting. Um, Odell Beckham, by the way, perfect fit in New England. We, we didn't get into it that much, but need a deep threat receiver. Another week that a running back led the Patriots in receiving, and it wasn't the wide receiver. So OBJ, if you're listening, 5-4. and four. They're playing Cleveland next week, so it's a little bit of you get to show the X how much they're missing. So just saying it's there. To me, best fits for him in terms of cap works, and I think he would work there. New England... Uh, the Chargers, I think, would be a good fit. I don't think the Raiders have enough cap space, but if they do, I think he'd be a really good fit. Eh, probably not. He needs structure. That's the thing with OBJ. I think he works really... Like, we didn't hear a lot from OBJ when he was on a good team and it was not very chaotic in in New York. Like When it wasn't chaotic, we didn't hear from him. The moment it got chaotic, he started to go off the rails a little bit. To me, New England is perfect for him because it's very structured. You know your role. You're going to be told your role. Bill runs the joint. He's not going to let it get out of control. I remember Randy Moss. Randy Moss was disgruntled wide receiver. Problem in the locker room. How can you bring in Randy Moss? And they only broke every single record the moment they brought in Randy Moss. Like I think they'll be fine if they go and get Winning, OBJ. Winning cures everything, man. Winning cures everything. Do you have anything else for our uh, nut check November, Tom? I think the Patriots are going to win the division. I think they're going to finish ahead of the Buffalo Bills. Um, So I think they will be playing a home game, which honestly they've been better on the road this year. They're 4-0 on the road this year. So maybe they want to be a wild card. Road record of 4-0 to me has always been telltale sign you have a good defense. If you can win on the road that consistently, to me that screams you have a good defense and you're good at running the football, which they are good at both of those things. Well, that's been the Patriots' recipe. Even last year, they were killed by all those COVID sit-outs. And now that they have a healthy defense, Matthew Judon has been anything you could have possibly asked for on that defense. Nuts. They are Really solid defense. I mean, they gave up six points. They had a pick in the red zone. They had a pick six as well. Like they are everywhere on defense, and like like a lot of young quarterbacks in the AFC, they are gonna make life difficult. All right, Tom. If you have nothing else for the Nut Check November, I believe that brings us to the end of another edition of There's a Lot Going On. I think this is slightly longer than we normally go, but we had a good interview there, so it's okay. It's all good in the end. Tom, do you have any final thoughts before we go today? Um, I said this to you before the pod, but I have a wire fun fact that that I discovered last night. 
Um, I was watching the music video to Hello by Adele. Not important as to why I was watching the music video, but... Uh, you're in your feels. Pl- it's okay. The actor who plays Michael from The Wire is Adele's boyfriend, or ex-boyfriend, in the Hello music video. So, there you go. Getting around. Hey, at least he's not the uh, ex-boyfriend in real life, because then he would have all these albums and songs about him. Or maybe he is, and we just don't know. I also kind of forgot she was dating Rich Paul until today when I was going through and check, like double checking to make sure that it was him. Yeah. I mean, I don't like Rich Paul. That is my entire thought on that one. Uh, if you made it this far, Hey, a couple things I want to remind you of, if you're still here listening, first of all, if you're here this far, you know what you need to do. You need to go on iTunes, give us a five-star rating. Tell us what you like, what you don't like. Tell us if you have any suggestions for things you'd like for us to talk about on the show. Also make sure you follow us on Twitter, on Apple Podcasts, on Spotify, wherever you can get a podcast, make sure you go there. Also, we now have a YouTube channel. Now, this full episode is not going to be posted on the YouTube channel, but Patty's full interview will be. So if you'd like to see our beautiful faces, I use the term beautiful very loosely, make sure you go onto the YouTube channel. You can just find it by searching. There's a lot going on on YouTube, and I will link it into the show notes of this episode as well. I had some other notes. Oh, and of course, most importantly, again, I will plug it one more time. Go into the show notes of this episode and go watch Patty's documentary, 16. It's very well done, very good story, very emotional story, and I think as many people as possible should see it. And if you see it and enjoy it, make sure you go tweet about it, make sure you post about it on Instagram, tag Patty in those things, text your friends about it. We want as many people to hear about this documentary as possible. So for Tom Shively, I'm David Arroyo. We'll catch you back here next week for another edition. There's a lot going on.